You may be seated. Friends, even as we now prepare to hear God's Word, let's remember that we are gathered together as a church in the gracious presence of our Lord Jesus so that we might stir up one another to love and good works. So let's resolve to not just be hearers, but doers of His Word. And may the Lord bless us as we hear. So please turn with me now in your copy of the Scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. Let's ask the Lord for His help as we look to His Word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would now help us marvel at the cross of our Savior. Cause our hearts to be so transformed by His love that we would delight in the communion of the saints. Feed us now with living bread that Your church may be nourished in the ways of eternal life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'd like to take a detour to Matthew 25 before we jump into 1 Corinthians 11 and ask this question, what will it look like when Jesus returns as judge of all the earth? How will He assess your allegiance, your love, and your commitment to Him? Well, Jesus tells us what this will look like in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. You can turn there if you like, or you can just listen. Just picture this. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king, that's Jesus, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you, a stranger, and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. 
I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Friends, Jesus teaches us in this passage that allegiance to Him, allegiance to the King is demonstrated by allegiance to the King's people. Even to the most insignificant member. Insignificant in the eyes of the world they may be, but not to Him. True faithfulness to the King by those who are blessed by the Father, by those who are called the righteous ones, true faithfulness is demonstrated by acts of love towards His people. Jesus said, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Beloved, our commitment to one another says something about our commitment to Jesus. When we neglect one another, when we fail to love one another, Jesus takes it very personally. And this is something that the Corinthians had failed to understand. And when they came together as a church to celebrate the Lord's Supper, their lack of love began to surface and show. It became visible and, and prominent, and Paul was shocked to hear about this. They were not eating and drinking to the glory of God. It's amazing how often this theme of eating and drinking to the glory of God shows up in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 10, we saw that a few proud Corinthians were eating and drinking at pagan temples, and Paul had warned them that they were provoking the Lord to judgment by their actions. And here in chapter 11, we learn that some of the members at the church, possibly some of the wealthier and socially prominent members, were indulging in another kind of eating and drinking that was also provoking the Lord. And so Paul rebukes them and reminds them of the true meaning of the Lord's Supper. And he teaches them how to approach the Lord's Supper rightly. When you approach the Lord's Supper, remember, firstly, remember that it is not about you. It's about the Lord inviting His church to fellowship with Him. Point number one, remember that it is not about you. Point number two, remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. This meal communicates what Jesus has done for His church. And then finally, number three, examine your heart soberly and partake joyfully. You're eating at the king's table. Number one, remember that it is not about you. It's about the Lord inviting His church to fellowship with Him. So look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. 
But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now, in the previous section, verses 2 to 16, Paul says, I commend you because you're holding on to my teachings about the roles of men and women in public worship, but you've applied some things wrongly. I get that. I see that. But this thing that I'm hearing about, probably from Chloe's people, there's nothing praiseworthy about this, he says. Because when you come together, I want you to note that phrase. It gets repeated five times in this passage. When you come together as a church. This is what happens when the church comes together. He is not talking about private dinners, but what happens in the assembly of the saints. Now in those days, churches did meet in homes. They gathered in homes. Most of the time they would gather in the homes of wealthier members simply because they had larger homes. They could accommodate a lot of people. But in Paul's mind, he makes a distinction between eating in a home and when you come together as a church to eat in a home. And he says, when you come together as a church, you do more harm than good. Can you imagine that? You do more harm than good when you come together. Instead of building one another up in love, instead of eating and drinking to the glory of God, they were sinning against one another. They were treating each other poorly. These were spiritual people with spiritual gifts doing some very unspiritual things. Instead of unity, in the covenant community, their fellowship was marked by divisions. Look at verses 18 to 19. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Meaning he's not entirely shocked. After all, he knew about their divisions over various leaders. He knew about their jealousy and strife. They were Behaving in a fleshly way. We saw that in 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 1 and 3. To some extent, I believe it, says Paul. For, here's why, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Brothers, how do you respond when you hear of conflict in the church? Do you get discouraged? Do you want to leave? Do you feel like withdrawing from fellowship? Conflict can be hard. And yes, it can be discouraging. But the one thing we can be sure of is the Lord calls us not to run away from conflict, but to be useful vessels in His hands. To be instruments of His sanctifying grace as we speak the truth of the gospel in love to one another. Beloved, this is the work of ministry that He has called us to. Each member caring for the other as we confront, as we identify sin, as we confess it, as we repent of our sins, as we turn to Christ for His cleansing power, as we extend forgiveness, as we pursue reconciliation and love and unity. These are the fruits of a congregation committed to one another in love. To think only about how conflict 
affects us alone, apart from Jesus and His purposes for the church, is to have a very self-centered view of conflict. Brothers and sisters, we are sinners saved by grace, but sinners nevertheless, who need the grace of our Savior every day. So stop getting your theology from popular culture and from Disney and from Bollywood and start reading your Bibles. Paul's response is, I'm shocked, but I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. There must be factions among you so that those who are genuine, those who have true saving faith, may be recognized. Isn't that amazing? Paul looks at this. He has nothing praiseworthy to say, but he can still say, God's doing something here. The Lord is doing something here. He is sanctifying His church. He is beautifying His bride, preparing her for her wedding day. Friends, every time someone sins in some way against a brother or a sister, it's right to say that it is a sad and grievous thing. But it's also good to ask, what is the Lord doing in the midst of the mess? Answer, He's building His church. Those who are genuinely born again and have the Spirit will see their sin, repent, and turn to Christ and reconcile, while those who are not will only harden their hearts, making it more and more evident that they do not possess the Spirit of Christ. Jesus talks about this sort of thing in the parable of the soils, doesn't He? Sometimes the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches will do what? Choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. When people sin against each other, brothers, we are given a front row seat to see what the Lord will do in the lives of our members. When people repent and grow in holiness and love, they demonstrate that they are living in the power of the Spirit. When people don't repent, they demonstrate that they're living by some other power. The power of the prince of this age. Listen to John in 1 John 3, 9-10. He says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, beloved, the New Testament is clear that our love for one another must be visible. We are to love not just in word, but also in deed. 1 John 3.18 and the most natural and God-ordained context for this to happen is when the people of God gather together. But in this case, something else was happening. These factions were becoming more apparent when people were having the Lord's Supper. At least they thought that they were having the Lord's Supper. So Paul corrects them. Look at verse 20. When you come together, he says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. 
Beloved, we don't get to assign our own meaning to the Lord's Supper. Why? Why is that? Because it is the Lord's Supper. People do this all the time. They take the bread and the wine in their small groups. They take it at home with their families or at youth conferences. Buzz Aldrin, the astronaut in 1969, famously took it by himself on the moon. True story. Brothers, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance given to the church. You take it when the church comes together. In case you miss that, he says it five times in the passage. And in this day and age, I have to clarify even this. It is when the church comes together in person. That's what coming together means. And if what you do does not line up with the purposes of the supper, it is not the Lord's Supper. Now, we have already been introduced to the Lord's Supper in chapter 10, verses 16 to 17, haven't we? The Lord's Supper, as we know, is a covenantal meal. It speaks about our commitment, our allegiance to Jesus and His people. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we not only remember what Christ has done for us, but we also renew our commitment to Him and to one another. You see, the love of Christ transforms us from a self-centered people to people who imitate their Savior by loving others, by putting the interests of others before themselves. Of all the contexts, that should be clearly communicated during the Lord's Supper, but this was not happening at Corinth. Paul says, it is not the Lord's Supper that you are partaking of. Look at verses 21 to 22. Here are the things that he heard about. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. Now, this word, meal, refers to an evening meal. And it appears that they were not waiting for one another, which is what Paul wants to correct at the end, when you look down at verse 33. You see, the Lord's Supper is supposed to be a family meal, and Paul is saying that some of you are behaving like you have no regard for your family members. And then he says this, one goes hungry and one gets drunk. Think about that. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, well, that doesn't sound like what we do at Grace Church at the Lord's Supper. If you eat that little piece of bread, well, obviously you're going to be hungry. It's such a tiny piece. And if you're thinking that, you're absolutely right. And that's because the early Christians did not celebrate the Lord's Supper like we do. See, we do it in a representative way. We give thanks for visible tokens. But they took part of the Lord's Supper in the context of a communal meal. It was actually a full evening dinner. These were sometimes called love feasts. And people would bring food that they could share and eat the Lord's Supper together. Kind of like our modern day potlucks. 
People would bring their own meals and they would break bread together, giving thanks to the Lord in His presence for their salvation. It was wonderful. But instead of eating together, some of the more prominent members, people who had a higher socioeconomic status, they began to act selfishly. They got there first. They ate the best food. They drank the wine, drank too much, apparently. were getting drunk without giving a thought to the poor members in their midst. Again, you have to remember the context. Wealthier people had homes, the poor did not. They met on Sundays, most likely in the evening, after people finished work. It took some time for the poor and, and slaves to get there. The services probably started with the meal. And then they had the Lord's Supper. And then they heard a sermon. That seems to be the the, the order in Acts 20, verse 7, you remember? They gathered together in the evening, first day of the week. They had a meal. They broke bread. And then Paul starts speaking all the way to midnight. People who owned the home would host the meal. And you remember what the culture of Corinth was like. Important people come in. Give them the best place. Give them the best food. They were behaving culturally. Imagine a bunch of people gorging themselves on the main course so that by the time the poor people get to the table, all they are left with is, are, are the pickles because all the kebabs are eaten. And so they go hungry. And Paul says the Lord's Supper is not merely about eating and drinking. If it's just about that, you can do it at home. You have homes, right? Eat at home. Look at verse 22. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Underline that. That's how you know that this was most likely referring to the poor, the less privileged members. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Paul says there is nothing good about this sort of behavior. In fact, it is inexcusable and despicable. Their behavior towards one another demonstrated how little they thought of Christ, His gospel, and His church. Paul says when you demean your poor brothers, when you deprive them and publicly humiliate them, you despise the church. You see, these divisions that were surfacing, these were not theological divisions, but socio economic factions. These factions were between the haves and the have-nots, between the rich and the poor. Instead of being defined by the self-denying love of Christ, this community was preaching a false gospel by the way they ate and drank. We've been hearing about this all the way from chapter 8, haven't we? What you eat, with whom you eat, how you eat, the context you eat, communicates, sends a message. How they celebrated the Lord's Supper, how they treated one another was sending this message to the unbelieving world that the disciples of Jesus who are indwelt by the Spirit of Jesus, who are gifted by the Spirit of Jesus, they are marked by self-importance and a lack of self-control. Paul says it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. 
That looks like you're eating at the table of the world where the cultural values of money and status and power and prestige are being proclaimed. That's what it looks like. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's Supper is not about us. You are not at the center of this ordinance. It is not a private dinner date that you get to have with Jesus in a room with lots of people. If during the Lord's Supper all you are thinking about is just you and Jesus, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. It is a fellowship meal with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you this. How often during the supper do you look around at the faces of these dear people with whom you will spend eternity with? There is a time for self-reflection. But there's also a time for joyous eating and drinking. After your self-examination is over, don't look down on the floor with sad faces as though somebody died. He's alive and he's in our midst. Look around you at your brothers and sisters with joy. To be united to Jesus is to be a family member of the household of God. And that means you sit at the table with other family members that you love and care for. There is a common covenantal communion that we experience when we partake of the Lord's Supper. You cannot sit at the table of the Lord and ignore the people at the table. And we dare not discriminate on the basis of our social status or wealth or gifting or ethnicity or gender. Remember what Paul says in Galatians 3, 27 to 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. Friends, today, we may not be eating the Lord's Supper in the midst of a communal meal where we might hog one dish and leave nothing for another. But there are other ways we can sin against one another prior to taking the Lord's Supper even. So let me ask you this. Have you been rude or impatient or irritable with your spouse. The new commandment that Christ gives us, <clears throat> the one that sums up the law and the prophets, that command that He enables us to obey, that wonderful fruit that the Spirit produces. What is it? It's the command to love, isn't it? And the failure to do so in faith is sinful and it grieves the heart of our Savior. So have you, while Practicing on the music team, exchanged unkind words with one another? Perhaps while serving on the welcome team, have you been envious of someone else's ministry? Have you in the past week failed to care and serve someone because you were too focused on yourself? Have you been inconsiderate of someone else's time? 
By the way, this is why we take up a benevolence offering every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. It is appropriate that immediately after participating in a loving communion with our triune king and with each other, we want to express our love for each other tangibly. We want to love indeed by taking up an offering for the poor and the needy in our midst. That's why we do it. Beloved, Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How can we who have been transformed by that love, not also in like manner, love one another. Paul says, nothing to commend here. There was nothing to commend here because it did not square with what Paul had taught them. This is what happens when the gospel does not inform our eating. Which brings us to our second point. When you approach the Lord's Supper, remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. This meal communicates what Jesus has done for his church. Look at verses 23 and 24. Nothing to commend. Why? For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. Paul says, here's how this is inconsistent. Here's why it's not the Lord's Supper. Because it is not what Jesus taught and it's not what I taught you. And here's what I taught you. Here's the tradition that Jesus passed on to his disciples. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. <clears throat> and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul's talking about the Passover meal that Jesus ate with his disciples. <clears throat> you see that in Matthew 26, Luke 22, Mark 14. This was the night on which he was betrayed, says Paul. This was the night when one of his closest friends sold him out to the authorities for 30 pieces of silver. This was a, this was a demonstration of Jesus' self-giving love at a time when you and I would, be, would probably be most concerned about ourselves. When are the authorities going to come? John tells us that after supper, he got up and washed their feet. That's the background to the Lord's Supper. Paul is saying, can anyone look at your behavior, at the way that you're treating your brothers and sisters, and say that you are Jesus' disciples? Now, if you remember when we did chapter 10, what would typically happen at a Passover meal? At a Passover meal, the head of a Jewish household would give thanks to God for the food while remembering the Exodus. This was a time when God rescued Israel from slavery. If you remember, he asked the people to sacrifice a lamb and put its blood on the doorpost so that when the angel of death passed over the land, he would pass over their houses. As the angel passed through the land, he would pass over their houses, sparing their lives but killing the firstborn of the Egyptians. God saved the people of Israel, not because of anything they had done, not because of anything good in them, but because of the blood of the Lamb. And in the Gospel accounts, we are told that Jesus, as the head of his household, the church, took the bread and the wine, and he blessed it, 
and he invested it with new significance. In doing so, Jesus was teaching his disciples that his coming death on the cross for the sins of his people was what the Passover pointed to all along. He was the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of not just Israel, but of the world. He was teaching them that his death and resurrection was the new exodus that the prophets looked forward to. And that his saving death and resurrection would rescue his people from their bondage to Satan and sin and death. He took the bread and he said, this is my body, meaning that the bread stands for or represents Christ's body. Christ's body was broken. He was bruised and beaten and crucified on the cross for the sins of his people. And whenever we break bread, we do it in remembrance of our covenant head and Lord, just as he commanded us to. Now, friends, historically, this verse, this phrase, this is my body, has been interpreted differently by different traditions. The Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper is called transubstantiation. Trans meaning change of substance. Transubstantiation. Catholics teach that the bread, by a miraculous act, actually becomes the body of Christ while the external appearance or the form of the bread and wine remains the same. So it still looks like bread and wine, still smells like bread and wine, still tastes like bread and wine, but it's actually the body of Christ. And so every time when the Mass is celebrated, they believe that Christ is being sacrificed all over again and again. And by consuming these elements, God infuses grace into the life of the worshiper. Friends, this is not what the Bible teaches. Hebrews 10.10 tells us that Christ offered His body on the cross once for all. It was a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. When Jesus ate the bread with His disciples, He wasn't eating Himself. Now, the Lutherans believe differently. The Lutheran view of the supper is called consubstantiation. Con means together with the substance. While Luther did not believe in transubstantiation, the whole idea of Jesus offering himself again and again, that was loathsome to him, he nevertheless argued that when Jesus said, this is my body, his physical body is actually and mysteriously present in, with, and under the bread and the wine when we celebrate the supper. Consubstantiation, in, with, and under the bread. Luther called this the real presence of Christ. That Christ is not merely confined to heaven, but He's everywhere. His physical body is actually here. Now, the reformer John Calvin disagreed. He argued that the risen Lord Jesus, being both fully human and fully divine, is in heaven. And a human body, even a glorified one, cannot be in two places at one time. To use the language of the Chalcedonian Creed, Christ's two natures, divine and human, are joined inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably. The distinction of natures are by no means taken away by the union, and the property of each nature is preserved. And so Calvin argued that Christ is indeed present with us, but not bodily. 
He's present with us spiritually through the Holy Spirit. That is the Reformed view of the Lord's Supper. It speaks of the spiritual presence of Christ. This is our view. And yes, it's a memorial. It's a covenantal remembrance. But it's more than that. Look at verses 25 to 26. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, after eating. So when Jesus did this, he took, the, took up the cup post-dinner, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, says Jesus. The wine symbolizes or represents his blood that was shed for us. It reminds us that Jesus inaugurated the new covenant in his blood. By his saving death, he secured the forgiveness of our sins. This new covenant was what the prophet Jeremiah spoke of in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Even though Israel was unfaithful to the Sinai covenant that God made with his people, God in his great mercy promised to make a new covenant with his people. When his law would no longer be external to them, but internal, written on their new hearts so that they would obey him. And unlike old covenant Israel, where only few people knew the Lord and trusted in him, under the new covenant where God would give his people new hearts by his spirit, they would all know him and he would remember their sins no more. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus did by offering himself as a single substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of his people. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 10 verses 14 to 18. Hebrews 10, 14 to 18. Notice how the writer, writing to the church, to the Hebrews, interprets this. Hebrews 10, 14 to 18. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. He's talking about Jeremiah. He says that was the Holy Spirit talking. Who's talking to us. Christians under the new covenant. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declared the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is what Jesus came to do. Jesus says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, the Lord's Supper is a visible sermon. In the eating and drinking, we proclaim. We announce to the world that what Jesus did on that cross is finished. It is complete. There is nothing lacking in the gospel. Friend, if you're not a Christian, our announcement to you is that the forgiveness of sins, no matter what you have done, the forgiveness of sins is found in trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. It is not found in fasting. It is not found in doing good deeds. 
It is not found in trying to be a good person. It's found in Jesus Christ alone. God in His Word tells us that we have not made Him the center of our lives. We have made ourselves the center of our lives. We have disobeyed His Word, and for that all humanity stands condemned. There is nothing we can do to remedy our situation or save ourselves. But God in His great mercy and love says, come to me. Turn to me. He Himself came in the person of His Son to die in the place of sinners. Paying the penalty, taking on the condemnation and curse that should have been ours. He did this so that whoever repents of their sins and puts their trust in Him may be forgiven and reconciled to God. No longer an enemy, but a friend, a child of God, seated at His table. Friend, apart from Christ, you are lost and without hope. Turn to Christ, and you will be forgiven of your sins, and you will receive eternal life. Brothers, the Lord's Supper doesn't save us. It's not a converting ordinance. It tells us how we have been saved so that we can proclaim it in our eating and drinking. What we get to enjoy is the benefits of Christ's saving death. When we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we are sharing in the blessings of and benefits of Christ's death for us. It's not that we don't already have those benefits by faith, but when we partake of it together, we are once again reminded from Scripture of Christ's new covenant work and our faith is strengthened. And so we actually do feed on Christ, not physically, but spiritually. We feed on Him the living bread. As we receive His saving benefits by faith anew, we experience His forgiveness, His peace afresh. It's not merely a remembrance. We're not thinking about Jesus like reminiscing about an old friend who died years ago so that we can have warm, fuzzy feelings about Him. No, we participate in a real covenantal communion with the risen Christ who is in our midst by His Spirit. He is here with us. We get to commune with Him. Brothers and sisters, we are to proclaim these truths until the Lord comes. And this means there is an aspect of our participation that looks forward to the second coming, to the wedding supper of the Lamb, that great messianic banquet where we will sing and feast and celebrate the victories of our Savior and King. This meal anticipates a greater feast to come. If you want to read more about the Lord's Supper, I direct you to some resources that we placed at the welcome table at the back. And one particular book is by Aubrey Sequera on the Lord's Supper. And I love what Pastor Aubrey says in his book on the Lord's Supper. He says, the Lord's Supper is a foretaste of that final feast, a lick of the spoon. It is meant to whet our appetite for the feast that represents the final fulfillment of all God's saving promises. That's where I want to go and eat. This is not much of a feast, a tiny piece of bread, a little cup. I want to get there to that wedding banquet. Friends, if we understand what Christ has done for us in the gospel, 
we understand that Christ has done this for us. By partaking of this meal, we commune with Him as members of His body, in His presence, along with other believers with whom we have covenanted with. To partake of this meal is to express solidarity with Christ and other believers we have covenanted with. To partake in the Lord's Supper is to say that we belong to Jesus and if, if this is how He loved us, we also ought to love one another. Brothers and sisters, the purpose of the Lord's Supper is for us to reflect and feast our souls on the rich spiritual blessings that Christ has purchased for us on the cross and to do it in loving fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. When members of a local church come together and eat of that one bread, the one bread that is broken, all those members, though many, are expressing unity. They are saying by virtue of their eating of the one bread that we are one body. Beloved, if Christ is not dear to us, we will not be dear and precious to one another. We cannot come to this table neglecting our God-given commitments to one another. This is why we ought to spend time meditating on our obligations to one another. We must examine ourselves. We must examine ourselves or else by failing to love one another, we will be guilty of sinning against the Lord Himself. And that brings us to our third and final point. Examine your heart soberly and partake joyfully. You're sitting, you're eating at the king's table. Look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Now what does it mean to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? Well, to eat and drink in an unworthy manner is to do what these Corinthians were doing. To act in unloving and selfish ways towards our brothers and sisters. Friends, this means that when you look at those covenant obligations in our church covenant, and when you realize that you have not prayed, that you have not admonished, that you have turned a blind eye to a sister in need, you must repent of your sin against Christ. You are guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Beloved, take a stock of who you hang out with most of the time. If the people you spend most of your time with ministering to are of the same ethnicity as you, or in the same socioeconomic bracket, then it might be good to do some heart searching in the Lord's presence today. When you sin against the king's people, the king takes it personally. For they are his blood-bought people. They are precious in his sight. And so we are called to examine ourselves concerning how we have sinned against others by doing what we shouldn't have done and by not doing what we ought to have done. Beloved, if you are a member of this body, Christ has called you to a job, to minister to His saints, to be an instrument in His hands in the lives of His people. That's why the Spirit has gifted you, not for yourself, but for others. You cannot be frivolous or flippant about your covenant obligations to one another. Look at verses 28 to 32. 
Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. There is a soul searching, a heart searching that we must do concerning our relationship with the Lord and our commitment to one another before we partake of the Lord's Supper. Or we will be coming together for the worse. And here's what will happen if we don't. Verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. Without discerning the body. Have your actions this week. Have they been loving, unifying and spiritually profitable. Or unloving, divisive and spiritually harmful. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. God's judgment will fall on those who, by their unloving actions, show themselves to be despising the church. Well, what kind of judgment is he talking about? Look at verse 30. That is why many of you, many of you, many of you, that is why many of you are weak and ill. Paul says, a lot of folks are sickly and they're suffering with bodily ailments and some have died. That word means fallen asleep. This is a term that the New Testament uses to describe the death of believers. Is Paul just trying to scare us? No, he's not. Is he saying that if we fail to see our sin and repent of our sins against one another, God will judge us with sickness and even death? Is that what Paul is saying? Are you sure that's what he's saying? That's exactly what he's saying. And if you have never slowed down and read this text, he's also saying that's actually a good thing. It's a kindness. It is a mercy from the hand of the Lord. Look at verses 31 to 32. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Self-examination is necessary in order to avoid the Lord's judgment. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Better to be disciplined by the Lord than to go to hell. This passage tells us that we should not view the sickness or even death as a punishment from the hand of the Lord, but as a discipline from the hand of a loving father. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Now, does this mean that every time someone falls sick in our congregation or dies, we can speculate cause and effect? Can we say, oh, he must have sinned, she must have sinned, he must have neglected one of those one another commands, he must have failed to love his wife, she must have failed to repent of anger. Maybe, but we cannot speculate cause and effect. We can't. You see, Paul can say this because as an apostle, God gave him this inspired insight into the lives of these Corinthians. We cannot know, nor are we called to engage in such speculation. But here's what we do know. Here's what we do know. If you continue to sin unhindered, you will be condemned with the world. Sent away to eternal punishment, says Paul. Repentance doesn't show up. It shows that you really don't belong to Jesus. And so it is a great kindness of the Lord to kill you than to let you continue in your rebellion. 
So what are we to do? Examine yourselves and repent of your sins. Beloved, if you have been unkind or callous to another brother or sister in some way, if you have treated them poorly like these Corinthians were treating each other, making worldly distinctions among yourselves, then after the sermon, go and reconcile. Identify your sin, confess it, seek the other person's forgiveness and be reconciled. But if there's any sin that you refuse to repent of, for your own sake, let the bread and cup pass you by. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord, brothers. Brothers, I want you to think about all the things that were happening in this church. Think about all the things that were happening in this church. Puffed up leaders who were chasing after fame and power, sexual immorality, lawsuits, marriage problems, fighting over rights, idolatry, boasting over spiritual gifts. The one thing that provokes and actually brings the Lord's judgment down on His justified people is when they approach the Lord's Supper with a frivolous, uncaring attitude. If you despise his people, you demonstrate contempt for the king. If you put on a pious face during communion, but you do not labor to love and build up his church, when you get up from this table, you provoke the Lord's judgment. Beloved, eat and drink in joyful communion, but also eat and drink soberly with repentant hearts. Remember, you are at the table of the triune king of the universe. If you have sinned, repent in his presence, even now, and take the Lord's Supper. Remember that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. And this is what Paul says to the Corinthians. Look at verses 33 to 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. What other things is he talking about? This one's easy to explain. I have no idea. Perhaps these were things related to the supper or the order of service. Or maybe they were things better demonstrated than explained. We simply don't know. But here's what's important to note. Doctrine is for application. And all that doctrine about the supper was to get through this one simple loving action. Wait. Wait for one another. Who says theology is not practical? Wait and share. Beloved, our spiritual sharing in Christ shows itself in real life through actual and practical sharing. Christ-like love is patient and kind. It does not insist on its own way. The wisdom of the culture says, put yourself first, prioritize you, do what's necessary for you. The wisdom of the cross says, deny yourself for the people of the king. And in doing so, you will show yourself to be a worshiper of the one who denied himself so that you may live forever. Let's pray. Father, give us the grace to love one another, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Teach us to be generous with our time and our money and our goods 
and our affections, that the world may see that we belong to Jesus. Help us now repent of our sins. Come, O Lord, and nourish our souls that we might glorify you with our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.